0: Mike Ling.
1: And I'm Charles Lee,
0: and you're listening to the Grok Science Show.
1: That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Karthik Shaker will join us to discuss after meat. So stay
0: tuned for all of this,
1: plus the Grokotron 5000,
0: and our world famous question a week
1: coming right up here on the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, meat. Increased waste that comes from this is one that needs this new solution. Joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Karthik Shaker. Dr. Shaker has a doctorate in chemical engineering from Northwestern University and postdoctoral research experience from ETH Zurich. Research career has spent many topics related to the future of food, including bioreactor design bioengineering metabolism and systems quantum biology he currently is developing the next generation vegan alternatives and has penned the new book entitled after meat the case for an amazing meat-free world dr shaker thank you so much for joining us today on the grok's science show thanks for having me what compelling well-written book you've put together here after meat in which you talk about the problems with meat why you decide to put this book together
0: The foremost reason I decided right is because I think it was an advantage, frankly, under discussed when we talk about the transition away from animal agriculture. So I think a lot of us intuit that there are profound environmental and ethical benefits to giving up animal agriculture, but there are also very profound technological reasons. What I mean by that is if we look at a cow as a bioreactor to make goods, so those goods are meat, dairy, clothing, and drugs... And we evaluate the cow bioreactor in how we do in chemical engineering industry. We see that the cow bioreactor performs pretty pathetically. So she takes almost about a year to grow fully. She wastes 90% of what's fed to her. She can't be really innovated that much more. And so I argue that these technological limitations of using animals to produce goods are actually quite irredeemable, and that we'll actually be able to do better with plant-based and microbial fermentation-based alternatives. We'll have foods that are not only environmentally and ethically better, but they also taste better or healthier and are more affordable.
1: What are the consequences of continuing along the road we're on?
0: Yes. So the ethical and environmental calamity actually follows from the technological deficit of animal technology. So to put that in perspective, right now, more than 30% of the ice free land on planet Earth is being used for or feeds animal agriculture. This 30% usage really rears its head when we think about the other side of carbon emissions. And that's our ability to actually sequester CO2. We can use trees to sequester CO2, but if 30% of land is actually being capitalized for this tremendously inefficient industry, that makes it harder for us. Calculations I've seen have suggested that if we free up this land, so switching from, say, a cow to a bioreactor, we actually free up about a thousand-fold land. So that's a lot of land we can use to revitalize forests and draw back CO2. I've seen it as actually one of the best interventions we have for getting underneath this 1.5 Celsius mean limit by 2100.
1: This industry is certainly underappreciated in terms of how it does contribute to the environmental impacts as one of the reasons for moving beyond meat.
0: I think so. So I think one deceptive way of looking at, you know, the environmental impact of different technologies is we generally focus only on emissions. When we look at transportation, at energy, we see that they're bigger pieces of the pie when it comes to CO2 emissions versus, say, animal agriculture. But really, we do discount this, uh, quote unquote, opportunity cost of animal agriculture so that it does take up so much land, so many resources that actually makes it harder for us to mitigate climate change.
1: It's a global issue, but one which has different interests in different regions of the globe.
0: Yes, yes, I I think so. So for example, the UK has actually shown tremendous progress as far as this transition goes. Now about 33% of UK residents are trying to actively reduce their meat consumption. And they actually hit peak meat a few years ago. So that is, per capita consumption of meat has actually started to diminish. Big UK grocery store Sansbury even predicts that 25% of Brits will be vegetarian or vegan by 2025. So the UK seems to be ahead of this curve. Different areas of the United States are becoming pretty receptive so that I'm in the Bay Area and can go to any restaurant and not have to worry about my food choices. Even in Europe, this start to really take off. And Singapore point a lot of government money into moving beyond animal agriculture. For them, it's a national security risk because 90% of what they consume in terms of food is actually imported. So for them to go for a much more efficient lab-grown meat actually helps them in terms of just making sure they're not at the mercy of all these companies they're importing from.
1: Has biotechnology moved to that point where this is really a viable option?
0: Yes. So there are a number of different technologies. The three main ones that are often talked about are the plant-based. So how do you take plant ingredients and make alternative successors to animal-based products? The other big technology that gets a lot of news is in vitro meat technology. So this is taking animal stem cells directly and then differentiating those stem cells and growing those stem cells into a fully formed steak. You know, truthfully, I'm actually a little dubious on this technology. I I do discuss it in the book. The third technology that I'm really excited about and I, I think has a chance to kind of blow everything out of the water is microbial fermentation. And so microbial fermentation is actually not a new technology. It's something we've been using for thousands of years, namely to brew beer, to to make wine, to bake bread. It entails taking microbes and feeding them some sort of substrate. Usually in the case of beer, it's something like barley. The microbes will perform chemistries for us. So in the case of beer, they'll consume the sugars in the barley, convert that into ethanol into CO2. And then that's why you get this alcoholic, bubbly beverage. Recently, we've learned, we actually engineer microbes to you know, make other useful products. The most prominent one, most established one, is insulin. So we, we figured out that we can actually make insulin using bacteria. We no longer need to harvest pig pancreatitis to get insulin. There's been more push for meat-based microbial fermentation. Probably the most famous one is corn, Q-U-O-R-N, which started in development in 60s, 70s, came out to market in the 80s. This entails growing these fungi in liquid bioreactors. so these reactors that circulate these fungi. These fungi produce mycelium, which is this very protein-rich matrix. And this protein-rich matrix mycelium can be fashioned into meat. So the corn meat on the market is is this mycelium. And, And I think the metrics from microbial fermentation are just so amazing, so overwhelming will just blow animal technology for sure out of the water, give you perspective. A cow-sized bioreactor that's microbial fermentation-based can place probably about 10,000 cows in terms of meat production. And so I'm, I'm really excited to see how this technology takes roots in the coming years.
1: Do you think that that's really the one that has the greatest potential in terms of its efficiency its scalability for the revolutionizing shift away from meat?
0: Yes, just on sheer metrics alone, it's just eye-popping, blows everything else out of the water that said you know maybe it's good for doing certain things but it's not great for other things plants are a great source of fiber in terms of nutrition for for our bodies we might be able to produce fiber in a microbial fermentation but i suspect for at least a long period of time we're probably going to be best just getting fiber directly from plants
1: drawback will always be from those who will say that the alternatives just aren't the same they're not good enough but they don't taste the same the new technologies can bring in terms of addressing those concerns fill the gap for everything that animals have been used for in the past.
0: Thanks for asking that question. I love that question. Yes, whenever we've replaced animals in previous technological aspects, the replacer was never a one-to-one replacement. So, if we think about, you know, for example, last mile transport, so for the longest period of human history, the only way we had to move large objects on land was by using animals. So this was horse-drawn carriage, you know, oxen, etc. What we replaced horse-drawn carriages and oxen with weren't robotic analogs. So we didn't come up with a robotic horse. We came up with novel, original design in car, motorcycle, tractors. I see a similar analogy with food. I know right now the alternative space is very fixated on one-to-one replacement and bioexactness. Can we have a cheese that's produced fermentatively but is molecularly equivalent to a cow or dairy-based cheese? And I think this is a folly. I think the history of technological replacement and advancing has shown that we don't actually need to do this. We just have to do things that are better gets to my point that we can probably come up with something original, but may not be exactly like dairy cheese, but satisfying us the same way as we've had with dairy cheese. So one example of that is pizza. I think a lot of your listenership loves pizza. I love pizza. And, and you know, pizza, you have, you know, bread, sauce and, and cheese, of course. Typically, it's shreds of cheese, right? So you you sprinkle the shreds of cheese, and then you bake it. But recently, there was an alternative food company, Miyoko's, that came out with a plant-based liquid mozzarella. It's no longer shreds. It's it's actually just a liquid, and you actually just pour it on top of the sauce, and it cooks very similar to cheese, but very easy to distinguish from classical dairy cheese. But all to say, isn't this actually better? Shouldn't we want something that's you know tastes better, or is it otherwise you know not exactly the same?
1: rather than going for mimicry, is really to develop something that's better.
0: Absolutely. Yes. Just to kind of elate people's fears about this, I do emphasize that, if anything, our history of gastronomy actually supports what I'm saying, too. So if you think about the tomato. So tomatoes, for a long period of human history, weren't available because it was effectively a, a new world food. And even when Europeans first discovered tomatoes, they were regarded very rarely because they're a nightshade or people thought they were poisonous. So it wasn't until the 19th century that people actually felt it safe enough to consume tomatoes. So that means all tomato-based cuisine we enjoy today didn't really happen before the 19th century. And there's other striking examples of this, too. So I'm of Indian heritage, and I think about things like peppers and potatoes and and okra and all these things that my mom cooks with. And and all these things didn't actually enter Indian cuisine until Europeans started trading with them in the 15th, 16th century. So if anything, our gastronomy and gastronomy choices are just rapidly changing and expected to really be influenced by this transition away from animal products.
1: Are there folks thinking in this how to utilize the products of viral reacted proteins and other products?
0: Right now, my biggest gripe with alternative food movement is that we do focus too much on mimicry and reproduction, and we need to be a bit bolder and just go for just some awesome creations that just weren't possible before.
1: What do you think there are steps for individuals to do to help move this along?
0: Yeah, great question, Charles. So first and foremost, it's just, you know, even supporting these products, I think adds a lot. You know, trying them in restaurants when they crop up, buying them from a grocery store. But even more powerful than that, I think we actually need government investment into this technology. And for anyone who's experiencing this wariness, there's an analogy here to clean energy. So we have many profound reasons to invest into clean energy. We want a cleaner planet. Non-renewable energy, by definition, will run out. Often it's a security issue for many nations to have renewable energy so that they're not so reliant on foreign actors. And a lot of these same rationales and reasons also apply to the transition away from animal agriculture. So transitioning away from animal agriculture will be one of the most impactful things we can do for the environment, beneficially. And it will increase food security because animals are so inefficient and actually really, really hurt our security in terms of food. There are all these reasons of just starvation and hunger. And with more efficient technology, we'll be able to feed the world easier and better.
1: Uh, Do you see any other innovations that maybe outside of the food industry that can also help move this along?
0: Yes. Developments in bioengineering, synthetic biology will help. So the better we can do that, the easier it will be to transition. Advances in artificial intelligence, data science will also help, just, just more knowledge in, in just biology, period. So one of the biggest struggles right now is placing things like cheese. So cheese is really dependent on the casein protein, which gives it all of its wondrous properties. So this so the melting, the stretching is all due to the casein protein within cheese and more advanced on learning about different proteins or biological materials that can reproduce casing would add a lot. And I could see similar benefit in things like replacing a steak, getting the right texture, and so forth.
1: Where we are and, and where we're going in terms of the future of moving beyond meat.
0: Yes. So my final thoughts is first, that I don't want people to see the future without meat as this ascetic future where we have worse food choices and streary and we don't enjoy our food. That's not going to be the case. My argument is that we're actually going to do better and and we're going to do better in every single way. And yes, if listeners would like to find out more, I have a website, aftermeatbook.com. The book itself is actually free to download. It's it's pay what you want, but the cost minimum is actually zero. And both audiobooks and digital books are available. 100% of the proceeds are being donated to charities that help us transition away from animal products.
1: We were just talking with Dr. Karthik Shaker. His new book, after Meat, the case for an amazing meat-free world. Dr. Shaker, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show.
0: Thanks, Charles. Take care. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show.
1: Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology.
0: If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling.
1: And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.